Our Advent study this morning is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, and verses 13 to 17, if you have it before you. Hear now the very words of God to us. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God bless the reading of his word. Invasion, that's what we've been contemplating in Matthew as we've been reading about how God became a human being that first Christmas. While we know about the what and the how of the incarnation, we've not been told very much to this point as to the why, to the motivation, to the personality, to the heart of this invader. If you uh, pick up H.G. Wells' classic sci-fi novel, The War of the Worlds, written at the very end of the 19th century, he describes his otherworldly invaders by telling his readers that, quote, across the gulf of space, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us a vastly more powerful mind, immeasurably greater than our own, an invader without mercy, without sympathy, without any fellow feeling towards us at all. That was the nightmare. Wells's Martians, he says, thought about earthlings with no more concern than one would think about an insect that one had just crushed underfoot. But you'll notice, by contrast, that is not the picture that Matthew paints of this invader at all. What is God's motive, then, as he breaks into our world? What is the heart and the intellect of God like? Why has he come down into his oppressed creation? What could possibly have moved him to trade security and privilege and authority for poverty, humiliation, and danger? Well, the answer in English comes in two words in verse 17. What is he? Well pleased, the voice from heaven says. I am well pleased. In other words, Matthew's underlining for you that God has said he is not cool or unsympathetic towards us or motivated by envy. On the contrary, he experiences pleasure In fact, he's so filled with this experience of pleasure that it utterly shapes his explanation as to why he has sent Jesus. And these are the words he uses 
in the first audible words in centuries spoken to Israel from heaven. He's not motivated by pragmatism or control or condescension or some passionless bureaucratic heavenly efficiency. No, he's motivated, he says, by pleasure, by sheer delight, by joy. And he has directed his pleasure, he tells us, towards this person whom he introduces to us as his son. So we're going to briefly look at this fifth Advent passage this morning and see three things here about God's pleasure. God takes pleasure in the obedience of his own son. God reveals his pleasure in opening heaven to us. And God finds pleasure in the perfect and acceptable atoning sacrifice of Christ. So if you would please, if you haven't, please turn to these uh, four short verses in Matthew. Matthew 13 through 17. And look at this, in verse 15, what do we see but that God takes pleasure in the obedience of his Son. I was thinking that apart from an odd reference or two, there isn't really much to put John the Baptist, the preacher of repentance for sins, in the Christmas picture. You have to make this kind of mental leapfrog to get from Matthew 2 to Matthew 3 and from Bethlehem to the Baptist. In a moment of absent-mindedness, I was thinking about another frog while I was watching the Muppet Christmas Carol the other day. I was reminded of the only thing I know that connects the Muppets and Matthew 3. Question, what do John the Baptist and Kermit the Frog have in common? Answer, same middle name. But there is, there is something that John says, that John tells us, connects him to Christmas. John, the gospel writer, spells it out. We heard Kat read the connection to us from John chapter 1. John the Baptist will be the herald to Jesus' ministry. He will go before him. Luke tells us the exact year, in fact, in which this takes place. It was the 13th year in the reign of Tiberius, which would make it precisely the year 28 AD, which was probably 28 years after the flight to Egypt. And Jesus would probably have been around 30 years old, the traditional age at which priests and rabbis would begin their ministry. So you can imagine, can't you, the moment that John the Baptist looked up and saw Jesus standing in line with all the others before him, getting ready to be baptized. And John says simply and presumably with amazement, look, he says, the Lamb of God. Matthew goes on to tell us that John was initially reluctant to baptize Jesus. John understood Jesus to be a spotless, unblemished lamb, someone uniquely without sin and innocent who had no need to repent of his sins, for he had committed none. And didn't people need to see that? So why would he wish John to baptize him for the repentance of sins? It must have means, meant a puzzle to John. And so here are the first words we hear from Jesus in Matthew's gospel on hearing John's hesitation at baptizing him. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's not, if you think about it, a thunderclap moment. It's a quiet explanation between the two. 
almost caught by a microphone nearby that was not necessarily meant for public consumption before this voice speaks from heaven. But that doesn't mean it's not important. There are three vital things that it tells us. First, Jesus from the beginning was following his father's plans and was careful to submit himself to them in every detail all along the way. Second, Jesus was doing the very thing, notice, that John thought he should be doing before Jesus, to take the lowest place, to take the role of the lowest servant, to be baptized by John. And Jesus, in taking his place in line for baptism, was communicating that even though he was himself without sin, he was to be associated from the very start with our sin and the means of rescue, our rescue from it. Theologically, we tend to think chiefly about Christ's payment for our sins as being holy and chiefly important. But equally important, the Gospels tell us, was his life of obedience, that he was sinless and his spotless record was applied to our account for our salvation that he who was out without sin also was the one who perfectly kept God's law in obedience. And so the invasion, as it turns out, is beginning to look more like a salvage operation than a slaughter, not so much a liquidation as a liberation. It's like as if the commander at the head of the invading army stands between his troops and those they're about to crush and says, I'm under orders to tell you that we're in this together. They must fire upon me and not upon you. And reading the Gospels, you realize that this invasion is unlike any that we've ever imagined. Like the firefighter breaking down the door of the burning house to rescue those who are stunned in their fear and have no desire to leave through the flames, he must come and carry them out. That's the obedience in view here. That's the extent of our own reluctance and our own incapacity to do what God requires of us. God takes pleasure, we're told, not in our obedience or in our activity, but in the obedience and the deeds of his Son. Second, verse 16, God reveals his pleasure by opening the way to heaven. Matthew reports that as Jesus emerged from the water, having been immersed, baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan, Jesus saw two things, and perhaps others around him saw them too, we don't know. But certainly everyone heard something that was said. First, what did Jesus see? Matthew tells us that he saw the heavens opened. In fact, Matthew says the heavens literally opened to him. And he experienced God's Spirit passing through the heavens and coming to him and resting upon him as if the Spirit were a dove. The heavens were opened, we read. It's actually the same verb that Matthew has already used when the wise men opened their treasures to show to Jesus and his family in Bethlehem. If you look back a bit in the Bible, you'll find the same expression in Isaiah 64 describing some kind of forthcoming rescue. This is the prayer, O God, Isaiah prays, that you would rend the heavens, that you would tear the heavens 
and come down. It's like the tearing of the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies in the temple from the people at the moment when Jesus died. So what separates and keeps people from God is now torn apart and forced open. And Jesus sees it. It may be that putting these two images of baptism and the return of the dove together, that some people have suggested you get an echo of the story of Noah. And the truth, of course, is that Noah was but the illustration and Christ the the reality to which it pointed. The judgment on all, the cleansing and the deliverance of those who were to be saved, brought into a new covenant delivered to a beginning in a new world. These were the things that Christ was reminded of that day and that others, like Matthew, were to witness. And who there would have understood them? It's important to understand that this was written in retrospect when God had opened the minds of the apostles and those who wrote the Gospels. Not even John the Baptist, it turns out, later got the whole picture. In fact, this wasn't the last time, you'll remember, that he resisted God. He couldn't imagine that Jesus was not there to establish an earthly kingdom. And we need to be reminded of this because people don't discover God. People don't find God or find salvation. It's only ignorance that speaks like that. The truth is... You and I and everyone else only find God when he chooses to find us and reveal himself to us. But when he does open our eyes, as we see here, he will show you things that will turn your life upside down. If you can imagine it, surely the very last thing that people who had gone down to the river that day to see, to be baptized by John, had expected was that they would see the Messiah, long promised, so long promised, it must have seemed but a myth to so many. And still less then that the Messiah they saw was to be by his own death the door through which sinners would be reconciled to their creator. The gateway through which heaven itself would be opened and the gateway to God made available. Who can see those things unless God shows them? If you think about it, even you hearing somebody describe those things, or even me thinking about them as I describe them, it won't strike any chords. It won't bring any passion with it. It won't deliver to you any joy or any significance. We will not understand its enormity and its total transformative power unless the Spirit opens your minds and reveals it to you. Otherwise, it will seem folly to you if it will seem anything at all. And I would say to you, if it doesn't resonate with you, then that may be a signal to you that you should seek God and allow him to come reveal himself to you as you read the Bible and seek him. If you haven't read what Martin Luther says about his conversion to Christ, it's well worth reading in his biography by Eric Metaxas, 
or in the uh, biography written by Roland Bainton, because it has to do precisely with this kind of opening of the eyes, this revelation. Studying Paul, he writes about his discovery of justification by faith alone in reading Romans 1, verse 17. This is what he writes. My situation was this, that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit, that is my ability to earn a salvation, would assuage him, would satisfy him. Therefore, I did not love a just and an angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. And then he said, I grasped. Really, he means that God opened his eyes to the fact that the justice of God, he said, is that righteousness, that outside righteousness, he says elsewhere, that alien righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I found myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise, understanding that it was the righteousness of an other that was to be applied to his and to all our accounts. And understanding that, he said, that is to behold God in faith, you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart, in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain, as if a dark cloud has been drawn across his face. So here is the revelation, if you will, that they saw a preview of that day, that Jesus himself was reminded of as he began his ministry, that in Christ and through Christ, through his good news, through the actions that he would make, through his sacrifice, the dark storm cloud that would separate us from the face of God would be moved finally aside. The heavens opened. The God whom we have so feared revealed to be wholly different than we have imagined him to be. You remember Stephen in Acts 7 saw that very thing. Behold, he said, I see the Son of God seated at the right hand of the Father. What does it mean? What will it mean to know such a God and to be in his presence forever? Well, again, it's an indicator to us of whether we have received the gospel, really whether it has penetrated through our own exterior uh, resistance to God and whether it has transformed us. Do you see a God who is simply angry with you or do you see a God who loves you in Christ? Those who have made their peace with him through Christ will enter into what, according to a later parable that Jesus tells? Will they enter into the anxiety of their Lord? Will they enter into the severity of their Lord? Will they enter into the criticism or the regret, perhaps, of their Lord as God rubs his hands worrying that he ever let them into heaven. No, Jesus says, enter into the joy of your Lord. Because from the very beginning on, onwards, this is the story of Jesus. John Piper says this, it is the good news of the glory of the happy God, 
as he quotes from 1 Timothy. So God reveals his pleasure by opening the way to heaven to us through Christ. And finally, verse 17, God finds pleasure in the sacrifice of his son. Behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's one of the curious facts about conservative and liberal theologians of monotheistic religions of almost any stripe that they are both partly right and are both largely wrong. On the one hand, God is loving, liberal scholars and preachers will tell you, and they are right. He is far more than they know. But they don't know the extent of that love or of what it has caused God to do, or the character of what that love will be driven to do through Christ. On the other hand, God is just and will not leave sin unpunished. Orthodox and conservative scholars and preachers will tell you in the light of God's law, and they are right. In fact, those words are taken from part of the way that God introduced himself to Moses, but they don't know nearly the extent of his desire for justice or the lengths to which he will go to see that justice done and that righteousness achieved. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, Paul tells us in Corinthians, has been prepared for those who love God. Neither conservatives nor liberals have imagined Christ and both of them in his own day hunted him down because he was not what they had imagined or planned for. So we take the word pleasure here from God's mouth, this word from the voice of heaven, to have a specific theological meaning that is both the fullest expression of divine love and the starkest fulfillment of divine justice as they are brought together. We can say that because the setting here is not simply emotion and motive. It's memory and it is action. The words are not immediately familiar to you and me. We read them in the Bible and perhaps we know the story but they don't echo with us as they would have echoed with those who loved Israel, who would have come to this place of repentance before the baptism of John. To those who heard these words from heaven, they would have heard them before. They are the exact same words that had been spoken before by a voice from heaven. They were the exact words spoken by God to Abraham in Genesis 22 at the sacrifice of Isaac. In fact, it's a curious thing that we know that many Jews couldn't necessarily read Hebrew. That was uh, given to the priests only in Jesus' day to read. And perhaps many of them would not even have known the words in their own language, Aramaic, from Genesis 22. But many of them would have known the Greek from the Septuagint of their own day. And the words in the Septuagint Greek of Genesis 22, verse 2, appear here in Matthew 3. 
As if God in Abraham, through Abraham, was saying, Abraham's son could never have been the sacrifice that I required. But here on this day, let me introduce you to Ohuos Mu Agapeto, my son whom I love. What that means is that the meaning of this phrase, in whom I am well pleased, isn't just an expression of fatherly pride. No, it's a historical echo of the most important story in Israel's history, which had been waiting for its fulfillment at this very moment. And it has to do, as it had to do in Genesis 22, with the only acceptable sacrifice that would reconcile Abraham and his family through atonement to the God against whom he had sinned with the only payment that Christ could offer that God would require in face of the damning estrangement of sin. What would it take to make things right with God? Well, only the sacrifice that God himself would provide. And so both the penalty of Justice against God's law was what God had stated, what only God knew, and the provision to fully meet that penalty was provided by God himself, in the person of himself, in the person of his son. I heard a story some years ago of a man whose young daughter was desperately ill with leukemia in a hospital in an emergency room. And on her birthday, she being desperately ill, he turns up at the hospital with a huge birthday cake to surprise her. And he was met as he came into the hospital, it's a true story, by her doctor, the daughter of the ward, to tell him that tragically his daughter had just died that morning and they had been unable to reach him. And the doctors tried their best to console him. But he, carrying this huge birthday cake, ran from the hospital and apparently wandered for hours, birthday cake in hand, until in his anger and his grief he came to a church and saw outside it a stone crucifix hanging on the wall of the church. And filled with grief and anger and disappointment and outrage at God, he threw that birthday cake at Christ's head and with it, all of the pain and the disappointment and the justified anger at death and disease and separation and all that sin has wrought. I'm not sure that I've ever come across a better description in terms that we can understand of what God the Father and God the Son had agreed to before the foundation of the world, that the Father would take all of that that sin had produced and that his justice required and that what God the Son would bear at the cross. And it was as if God the Father took all of that hurt and disappointment and tragedy and outrage and hurled it squarely at his own Son. And the Son meekly, like a lamb, and willingly received it for the redemption of those his Father had sent him to save. Listen to these words from Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, and I think it means Christ, he shall see and be satisfied. 
making many to be accounted righteous, he shall bear their iniquities. Was Jesus a victim? Was he perhaps the unwitting victim of some kind of awful divine child abuse? No. He was the willing participant and only capable volunteer. So what it is that we enjoy today and will do even to a time when the galaxies, as Lewis said, will be remembered as an odd tale, we enjoy, we will enjoy, because the Father loved the Son and they together with an infinitely immeasurable love to their own cost have loved God's people and all that he has reached out to in his love through the message of the gospel. So my friends, let us receive their love and live in the good of it as we come into this new and we trust better year. Let's pray. Father, I find myself like a toddler, like a young child, carrying a crayon in hand and scribbling with not very much accuracy or perhaps insight between the lines, trying to color in what it has meant that an infinite and holy and innocent God should decide to take the lowest place and to make himself the one who would bear the penalty of our own sins against him. It is an astonishing reality and a remarkable and a unique offer to us in his good news that these things are given to us as a gift, that there is nothing other that we are to bring except simply the acknowledgement of our own sin and our own need, and then to receive the gift that has been placed under the tree for us, that we would take Christ and take him as saviour and go on in joy with him. Lord, would you renew our joy as we come to this new year in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.